Welcome to The Grand Life, a podcast about grandparenting, exploring ways to be better at it, and connecting to those who are in it with us. I'm Emily Morgan. We recently finished our basement in order to have more room for our active grandchildren to play. My favorite part of the project is a small area under the stairs where there's a doorway into it on one side and on the other, a window where all sorts of things can be imagined. A store, a shop, a drive through restaurant. It opens up a space for lots of cool things to happen. If it wasn't there, the grands would have fewer options. That's how I feel about activism in a family unit. If you come from a family where there was no such window, I'm speaking metaphorically here, you may feel a bit limited in how you might become an activist for a cause. If you come from a family with that space created for you, you might find it easier to find your way. That certainly was the case for Joan Ditzian. We'll cover who she is in a moment. Joan describes her family as very aware of their role in making the world a more equitable place for all. Family with a strong social conscience. Uh, my parents were very progressive. They were also educators. They were involved in teachers' unions and organizations, and a very close extended family, a Jewish family. Uh, and basically, there was also a, a lot of, there was a, many women in the family. There was a sort of strong matriarchal line of nurturing women that really inspired me to get involved with the feminism and the women's health, women's movement. Because I always felt there were women who, you know, in our sexist society didn't actually get the validation that they deserved. So I always feel I'm standing on the shoulders, you know, and yet was grateful that the women's movement, you know, emerged. Also, my grandmother supposedly, you know, was support of the suffragettes and went to some marches and stuff. Yeah. So and then I also was a graduate student in Berkeley and I got involved with the free speech movement and actually was arrested. So I had a whole sort of somewhat of an activist, you know, social conscience. Joan Titsian is the mother of two sons, grandmother to three. She's best known as the founder in the 1960s of the Boston Women's Health Collective. And she is a co-author of the classic book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, which had much to do with advances in women's rights, activism around equity, and all that has followed since. Maybe you could tell us what the Boston Women's Health Collective is, for those of us who don't know, and how you came to be involved in it. Well, the Boston Women's Health Collective sort of refers to two entities. One is the group of people that worked on our bodies ourselves, of which I'm one of the founders. And then that morphed into a new or an organization, which is called Our Bodies Ourselves, which is a or- nonprofit organization. And we've been around for 50 years. Wow. <laughs> and are one of the few surviving groups from the early days of the women's movement. So that's quite something. And, you know, over the years, and this was never the intention, we did work on nine editions of Our Bodies Ourselves. There are 33 foreign editions. It's traveled around the world. 
Uh, I and wherever we go, there always people have stories. You know how it, it really moved them at some point. It was helpful to them at some point in their lives. So I frankly feel in awe. <laughs> and I'm just grateful that I was sort of at the right place at the right time because yeah. no one ever intentioned any of this to happen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So unintentional consequences of all this work. And actually, if, if any of you listeners have not read this book or seen this book, it's, it's kind of a tome. I mean, it's huge. And it has a lot of information in it. Mostly, how would you describe the information that's in it? Yeah. Well, I guess just want to say that we have a website called ourbodiesourselves.org. So anyone can look at it. It gives the history, a lot of information, all the current information as well. And I guess it was just a, initially basic information for women about our bodies, ourselves, our lives, our health, our sexuality, our reproduction, our interface with the medical system. And there's a whole sort of organic way this this was not information that was easily accessible to women when this project began. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, you don't think about that now because you can Google anything you want. You can get all the information you want. Let's talk a little bit about how old you were when you got involved in the Boston Women's Health Collective and what influenced you in that direction. Well, I guess this was, it, well, I got actually involved in age 26. And what influenced me initially is, I guess, in 1969, January, I was st we were still living in Washington. I was newly married, and we went to an anti-Nixon inaugural event. <laughs> and sitting around, this group of women stood up and they said, we're from Boston, we're from Women's Liberation. We don't want to just make coffee and take notes. We want to be partners and we want gender and equity. I said, oh my God, I'd never heard anything quite like that. So I said, when we go back to Cambridge, I really want to find out more about this. I think the thing that was so special to me about the women's movement is this: there was this idea that our sexist sort of patriarchal society was one that touched every woman's life in some way. And the personal was political, that when women began to look at their own personal lives, they were all affected by it in some way. Not everyone joined or was part of it, but that it, it was a broader base. It touched sort of some core human issues that the movements hadn't. Yeah, very universal. So I was looking back, and in a 2005 New York Times article, the, the original version of Our Bodies, Ourselves was described this way. Quote, it had a distinctly hippie, wholesome, anti-materialistic flavor, the clean bouquet of activism and political progress. Would you consider yourself a feminist when you read that Cause, and an activist? Because, you know, that's what they're saying. Yeah. I mean, I always considered myself a feminist. You know, when we moved back to Cambridge, I found an ad in what was called the Old Mole, which was an underground newspaper. And they said, there's going to be a women in their bodies course. So I said, oh, you know, I'll go and see what that's about. <laughs> so I went and I walked into a room. This was at MIT Lounge. And there were like 50 to 60 women in their 20s and 30s. And I'm sitting around. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And 
the, what, the background to this, this was, I think, in the fall of 69. In May of 69, there had been the first women's lib conference here in Boston. And there was a workshop, Miriam Hawley, who's one of the founders, gave it. And it was women in control of their bodies and was talking about reproduction and sexuality. But a lot of focus on, on childbirth because many of the women in the group had just had babies through natural childbirth or whatever. Joan goes on to tell a classic story where after a woman gave birth, her male doctor walked in and said about himself and the birth, I did a good job, didn't I? While that elicited a laugh from the class, the truth behind it was that women 50 years ago were still not in control of their own birth experience. Initially, the project was to find a list of good gynecologists. And then after a little while, they said, you know, it's weird ignorant. We don't know much about any of this. We don't need to find an expert. We need to learn ourselves. And so that became this idea, well, let's do a course. So that was a few months before the course. So I joined the course. (laughs) And as I said, there are like about 50, 60 women in the room, some with babies, some nursing. And it was just, it was just a really, really good energy. And the course, you know, had different topics of conversation. So, you know, it started with anatomy and there was a big drawing of women's genitals. I'd never seen that, you know, <laughs> on wall. <laughs> then I guess it was sexuality they started with, and it was talking about, you know, clitoris and vaginal orgasms and clitoral orgasms and, you know, a quick masturbation. And I said, oh my God, I started blushing. I was going to fall through the room and the floor. And because, you know, for me, general deaths down there, I knew facts of life, but, you know, not that much. But the idea that there was a real affirmation of women's point of view of sexuality was totally new. Because uh, so much of the information was men's view of what women's experiences are like. The whole underlying issue, I think, for me and so many women then, was we ha- had grown up in a culture that really was sexist and patriarchal, and that's just, we took that as normal. But, you know, in my case, you know, I'm born female, so I was inferior to men, the second sex in a way, an object to please man. I would grow up and get married and have kids, and that would make me a legitimate adult. And men understood the world, and women had to just sort of see how they saw things so that we could understand the world. And when I began to trust my own experience and validate my own point of view in the world as a woman, it was just a real breakthrough. And it was like this aha moment that I has been probably one of the most formative experiences of my life and has, you know, been amazing in that way. And there was a slogan, the personal is political, but it really is so, because just from these very simple little everyday experiences, you know, that's not fair. Society needs to be equal. We want equality between the, gen, you know, sexes. And yeah. that, that's a reasonable goal. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That is a reasonable goal. Yeah. Um, and you were very uh, instrumental in bringing that forward. Um, there are some, I remember back uh, reading about naysayers about your book, Jerry Falwell, Phyllis Schlafly. What did they have against our bodies ourselves as a book? 
I think they just felt it was um, trash, as I think they put it. They just started condemning it. I mean, and underlying people, women shouldn't have reproductive rights, shouldn't have birth control, shouldn't have abortion. This was again, you know, some religious principles, but that it was for every woman. It was wrong for anyone, you know. And and so Jerry Falwell picked up Phil, Phyllis Shackley was rather anti-feminist. Yeah. And then she, uh, Jerry Falwell, picked it up, and I think in eight, 1980 organized the moral what it what was his the moral majority yeah, the moral yeah. majority mm-hmm. and to to condemn it and to ban it from libraries ultimately in 2012 library of congress uh, viewed the book as one of the 88 books that changed and shaped america wow so, <laughs> wow that's that's pretty amazing to be uh, at the core of that for you I, I can't imagine how that must feel it must be a great feeling it, it, Oh, it is. It is. But it's there's something almost unreal about it, you know, and it's sort of but the thing of it is that it is always felt collaborative. I mean, I've never felt it's me. It's working together on this project. And that to me is one of the biggest lessons learned, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. to think of you as kind of the unintentional activist or the accidental activist. Which <laughs> which one would you claim? No, it's it's not exactly accidental because, as you talked earlier, I, I come from a com- family with social conscience. Right. So it is not really, you know. And, and then what's happened for me is over the years, I became a geriatric social worker and I got involved in aging. And, and for me now, the two, feminism and combating ageism, is as important as, you know, feminism for me. And, and it's sort of evolved over time. So I call myself an aging activist because I like to feel the energy continues. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I was actually perusing um, Our Bodies Ourselves. It's not one book that you could read in an hour or so. And I was, <laughs> I got a big kick out of them talking about, um, uh, we, talk ourselves, we talk about ourselves as post-menopausal. Uh-huh. And I, I think we were joking about how, uh, you know, why are we defined? Why are we as aging women defined by whether we're bleeding or not? I know. I think that's great. <laughs> I have to do something about that one. <laughs> we absolutely do. We need to change that. We can just be older women, like you're right. old, an older man. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm wondering if you think you're passing on that social change gene down to your children and your grandchildren. What do you think? Uh, yes, yeah, but I'm, I'm not didactic in any way. It's it's indirectly. And, you know, I think we talked about, I mean, to me, oh, once another, our bodies, ourselves re- relates directly to this, that one of the things about the, the organization is we have always been pro-parenthood, that there were many organizations that were anti kids, anti-men, we were never that way. Mm. And in fact, many of us, and one of the core values we had is that, you know, parenting, if chosen, <laughs> is incredibly important work. Yes. I mean, right, more important than raising the next generation, that men can do it as well as women, <laughs> that society needs to pre- provide all sorts of structures and supports so that families can do this and not just have people fend for themselves. In my mind, reproductive raising kids work is as important as marketplace, you know, productive work. And it's never had the same kind of value. And yet that's how society continues. Yes. So, I mean, so I always have felt that 
from the very early days. I was one of the first women in the group to read Our Bodies Ourselves While Pregnant because many of the original founders had kids. And so I, you know, <laughs> I decided to have, we decided to have children. And then some of us worked on a book called Ourselves and Our Children, which was again, promoting the importance of parenthood. So in that spirit, you know, in terms of grandparenthood, all the stuff that you're involved in, it's just the natural outgrowth for that. And it is a form of activism in a way, because it's, it's with pride, you know, raising the next generation. And I, I feel that's so important. The other thing I feel with the grandkids is I focus a lot on the importance of intergenerational relations. And that in our society, it's very age segregated. And, you know, yes, families can be close, but it's like, the, it, it, it's harder. And there's a lot of stereotypes against older adults. So if one of the grandkids said, oh, that's old, I say, what's, nothing's wrong with old, you know? So there's a lot of informal, they know I'm into families, they know I'm into intergenerational, and they know I'm into aging with a sense of meaning and purpose. Mm. And it's just subtle conversation, but those are core values. I think, I hope I'm passing on. I think you are. And then, yeah, I think you yeah. are. I think we are. I mean, I think that's what we do when we, whatever passion we have. And, and I feel very similar to you in terms of my passion for intergenerational and for grandchildren and family. Um, like you said, it's, it's as important as marketplace stuff or anything, you know, who, who cares so much about the stock market if the family's not thriving? It's funny. I, I view myself as a feminist living amongst men, you know, because there's my husband, my two sons, my wonderful daughter-in-laws and my three grandsons. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, That's funny. So, so over COVID, I had used to teach art and, and one of my sons said, well, maybe do art with the kids on Zoom. So we started and it went all through 2020 where I would meet with them every day and we did whiteboard drawings. Oh, fine. And the things that I would focus on it were collaboration that we all worked together on the drawing. And in that case, it was more focusing on nature, you know, and it was more climate change things, but I would emphasize for them, we need to protect the world and how precious nature is and stuff like that. So I was pretty, you know, out you know, talked about that directly. And then, you know, I don't, I mean, when elections came up, I said how important it is to vote. And, you know, when they're 18, they can vote. And, you know, when there was this, you know, you know January 6th, they knew it was not a good thing. You know, so I'm always talking to them about the importance of democracy and the importance of government and the importance of taking responsibility. But it's not soapboxy, you right. know, it's just in formal conversation. Yeah. I just am working for a non-sexist, non-ageist, totally egalitarian society uh, that's interdependent and intergenerational. And it's, that's to me wholesome. I mean, it's a vision that I keep trying to help happen. Joan has a vision for a future that includes so many of the same things I would want for my grandchildren. Talking to her reminded me that even though I didn't come from a family of activists, I can start now to try to make a difference in the world and set an example for my children and grandchildren. You can too. Whatever it is that you feel is important, you can leave a legacy for them by getting behind something you really believe in and that will make our world a better place. Remember what I said about finishing our basement? 
Don't be discouraged if you hit a wall. Just figure out a way to create a window and start imagining a brighter world. So get out there and march, speak up, go to meetings, vote, whatever it takes. We are not the silent generation. We can make change happen. Speaking of activism, make sure you check out the newest edition of the online Grand Magazine. The cover article features Cat Stevens, and there's also an article about New York Times journalist Paula Spann, who was my guest on an episode earlier this year. Both are grandparents, and both are making a difference in the world. You can subscribe for free at grandmagazine.com. Next time on The Grand Life... We need gratitude practice and not gratitude for macro things, big things that we should feel grateful for our health. If we're healthy, we should feel grateful for that if our family is together. But it's sometimes hard to need to feel gratitude for those big things when you're coping with change or loss. So what's helpful is to go out and say, well, I'm feeling really grateful right now that my peonies are blooming and have that tiny little thing that you can point to that says this, this thing. I'm gonna focus on this little thing. That's next time on The Grand Life. I'd love it if you would share your thoughts and ideas for this podcast by contacting me at grandlifeconnection at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 317-572-7876. I've said it before, I do not pretend to be the best grandparent ever, but I will confess to believing that being one is the best thing ever. I'm Emily Morgan, and thanks for joining me in Living the Grand Life. This podcast was written and hosted by Emily Morgan, my grandmother. It was produced and edited by Mike Morgan, my grandfather. Email them at grandlifeconnection at gmail.com.